North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the Beautiful Inland Northwest. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you, natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find God's Word preached purely and His sacraments given out for your salvation at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, Our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and His wisdom week in and week out and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, Our Savior, Pagosa Springs, has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School, a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org. Uh, Dr. Kuntz, I have a question for you of my own, but we're going to start with a question that has been sent to us by Alyssa, or Elisa, and I apologize if I said that wrong, but she asked this, and it, it really is like a pertinent one, especially given the talk about collapse of societies recently, and then everything going on with yeah. what, the Rona and Omicron and, and all these, and she says this, what does a person do when their kids are being barred from attending Sunday school? confirmation and now participating in the Christmas program at their Lutheran church, Missouri Synod church, because we as parents refuse to, now she says, abuse our children by masking them. Yeah. So this is something that I'm going to be writing about a little later in the month. So watch out for that. That'll probably come out with Gottesdienst and that'll just be a little fuller example of what I'm going to say right now. And uh, I know this is going on, especially in Uh, other countries as well, like our German partner church. This is a question and none of it appears to be happening at an official level. So your conscience cannot be controlled by the news or the government. They might have some inputs. They are probably enormous inputs in some people's lives, but your conscience has to be controlled by the Bible. And since the Bible really doesn't say anything about whether you do or don't wear a mask or do or don't get vaccinated, just abstractly considered, you do not have to be bound by that. Your church might be binding you to those things, in which case you do need to find a different church. Okay. And I'm happy to go on record with that. You need to find a different church. What that looks like, where you live, I don't know any of that. I don't know what the pastor has said to you about any of this. I don't know any of that. But if your conscience is being bound to whether you put your children in a mask, you need to find a different church. And one of the things I'm going to be saying and what I'm writing coming up here is we can live in a world in which some people at church wear masks and some people don't. We can live in a world in which some people at church are vaccinated and some people aren't. 
We can't live in a world, which is the world we're increasingly being told we have to live in, where everyone has to wear masks and everyone has to be vaccinated. And the reason Christians can't live in that latter world is because Christians cannot bind one another's consciences to things to which the Bible does not bind their consciences. The church actually is not authorized to do that. That's described in our confessions as papal slavery, when people have ideas that are not specifically biblical, and then not just have the opinion, but require the opinion of others. Like I have opinions about this is a nice climate to live in, or you shouldn't buy a new car. It's financially a bad idea. I'm not requiring people in the church. And the, the irony here, not really ironic if you read the Bible, is this only goes in one direction. I don't know of a single church in the entire Missouri Synod that is requiring people never to wear a mask or not to be vaccinated. It only goes in one direction. So if that is the case, and that's where they're staying and they won't listen to reason. Now you need to make them listen to reason if you haven't tried yet. But if they won't listen to reason, then you need to go to a different church. I'm in full agreement with you, but just for the sake of, of the arguments that are out there, um, yeah. isn't what you're saying kind of refusing to love your neighbor? <laughs> right. And uh, loving your neighbor here gets to be defined by whatever the media is trying to terrify you with right now. So I don't let the media or the government define the nature of Christian love. And not wearing a mask and, you know, not being vaccinated does not mean that I don't love my neighbor. Because guess what? In January 2020, no one envisioned any of this. And I'm extremely suspicious of any definition of Christian love that no one thought of, I don't know how many months ago, let alone centuries ago, that I have to take certain public health measures identified by people who were telling me, like, so let's say love my neighbor. Go find the clips, send them to your church council. I don't care what you do. From early 2020 news clips, you can still find them on the internet. I don't know how or why you're still allowed to find this stuff of people, public health officials telling you not to wear a mask. Right, right, right. Because it's dangerous. You don't know what you're doing and you're going to take away needed masks from medical professionals. So don't wear a mask. You can also find there are plenty of these still out there, at least screenshots of tweets of, you know, left-wing politicians saying in 2020 that they're really wary about this vaccine because Trump is really rushing this thing. Right. I don't know if we're going to take it. And now, you know, and Pastor Fisk is bored with my answer because this is stuff, you know, like, it's like, we, we know all this. If you listen to this show, you know, all this, probably your church council, your pastor doesn't know any of this. They don't know that your conscience was being instructed in a completely different direction by the very same people 20 months ago. They don't know that. So if they haven't been told that, it's at least worth your while, whether you're going to leave or not, to let them know that you can't have your conscience be defined by not only a source that is not divine, as is the scriptures, but also a source that is self-contradictory. I could almost segue into our, our normal conversation here by asking if the role of movies in a modern society is to memory hole you. But but I still want to give you a chance to, to do one more argument because and, and, and you've done it before. And I promise not to be too bored because I really think it's worth saying, OK, 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 I get, I get it. So yeah. it's not about loving my neighbor, but Romans 13, you know, the government has said do this and we got to be good citizens and do this. Right. And that is, the, that is the, the view of government that I call the food chain view at this point, which is you think that government basically means that the shark gets to tell you what to do or he's going to eat you. And that's the meaning of Romans 13. It's a food chain and you're low down on the food chain. You're just a little church or a little individual citizen. And that is neither what Romans 13 means, nor is it actually the powers that be in our Republic. Romans 13 means that you subordinate yourself for the sake of the purpose Paul outlines, which is the punishment of evil and the reward of goodness. Reminder, our government kills children. Reminder, and has for a long time. Reminder, our government is not televising the Ghislaine Maxwell case. Hmm, amen. But our, our, our chief executive of our nation, who really had no business 
either in southeastern Wisconsin or anywhere else saying things like this, told you Kyle Rittenhouse was an evil racist back when this started, before the trial started. So they are intervening in evil, determinative, they hope, ways in all kinds of things. And they are going to punish you for not being vaccinated. Okay, so we are not dealing with the straightforward general purposes outlined in Romans 13, which is true. And Paul's argument is basically government is ordained for this purpose, and that's better than having no government. And I'm happy to pray, even in church, to give thanks for Joseph Biden, because that's better than all-out civil war. Sure. But it's also not part of our form of government, which is, in the very general terms of Romans 13, the powers that be, that American citizens let the government tell them whatever they want to tell them and then obey it. That's not the form of our government. So if you are letting it be the form of our government, you are overturning our form of government and at least nascently replacing it with something else, a real food chain. And if you want to do that, then at least be straightforward about that. Don't tell me that that's what Romans 13 requires of me as an American Christian, well, because it doesn't. Yeah, especially when most people would say that they're they're not monarchists, right? And so what you're doing is you're taking <laughs> Romans 13 and you're making it as if the president is Caesar, and right. whoever says I'm yeah. Caesar just gets to be. Uh, and well, again, uh, you answered way better than I did. So what is the role of film in an enlightened society? What is the role of entertainment in an enlightened society? And is there any way to use these things without being memory hold? Film could have a role as any art could have a role, but Plato banned the poets from the Republic for a reason. Even if you look at his Republic as just a thought experiment, which maybe it was, and maybe the realistic political document he produced is the laws, which nobody reads. <laughs> Not in the West. Uh, the Iranians are really interested in the laws. Oh, as go a, figure. You yeah. Know. So there you go. But even if it's a thought experiment, he bans the poets because he recognizes the power of art. So if I'm going to have art and I'm going to use a variety of media, I'm going to have to make a decision. Are there media that are just too dangerous and we simply cannot permit them? Because there were, and we'll talk about it this week, there were moves long before there was even sound in film. There were moves for state censorship. I mean, quite literally in American political terms, the state having a censorship board as early as 1920, 1921 in a variety of states. So they recognized, I think, the power of that specific medium because, and I think we've said this before in connection with David Lynch, film has a peculiar power and it has a power similar to, I think, much more realistically, that Richard Wagner thought that opera could be something like a, a total work of art, right? That's, you know, there's a, there's a German word for that, a single German word, total work of art. And I think film approaches that much more realistically even than opera does because it has an immersive capacity, partly because of editing and the capacity for reproduction that opera doesn't. So because of that, yeah, it could have a role in the way that any medium could have a role. That is a prudential judgment for those who make such decisions, whether it's parents or authorities or whoever in a given place and time is making this decision. Is it actually wise for us to have that, right? Like you can see this in the history of Israel. They have sculpture. The sculpture actually saves them once in numbers, Later on, that same sculpture needs to be destroyed because they can't handle the plastic arts anymore. They just end up worshiping it. And so that specific bronze serpent gets destroyed. So it may be opportune for a kind of, at least a medium, to exist at one time and not at another. That's, that's really something that has to be made. That's a decision that has to be made. That's not something I can say, yeah, film is... I, I don't think film is inherently evil any more than I think writing or sculpture or dance are inherently evil, right? There's, you know, there is dance in some connection with a divine cult in the Old Testament. I don't think dance should be in a divine service, 
precisely because it really in our culture has never had a place in a divine service, not even historically. That doesn't mean it's absolutely completely always everywhere for every people group evil. It means that it has neither precedent nor much potential for us in a divine service. One of the things that I've been uh, thinking recently about film and whether or not a person is going to say, you know, yay, nay, you can watch movies, you can't watch movies right now, is that we are the least equipped people to make any assessment as to its potential because we're inside the matrix, right? Uh, if you are uh, born and raised on these things, then how can you say they are good or bad? You, you're the control or you're the test subject. Yeah. Uh, you, know, yeah. you, you can't actually say from the inside. People, like 200 years from now, historians looking back, pouring over whatever survives out of this madness, you know, <laughs> they might be able to make some conclusions about this, right? Yeah. But for, for our parts, we're so on the inside. And then that comes more down to like, okay, so it's, it's not just about the medium, although I do think it is a little bit still, but it's then about who's controlling the medium. Right, who's 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 making these messages? How many Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Christians are like deciding what we're going to watch on a Friday night by creating it? And if they do, does anybody want to watch it? <laughs> yeah, you know, um, no, none of us, right? Where are you going to find the entertainment that is edifying? Right now, and I maybe you go back before the Second World War. I mean, uh, what I, I, I'm I think uh, what Snow White, uh, uh, what is it? Um, oh, how can I forget? Uh, yeah, the Wizard of Oz. Uh, one of my thoughts for the opening question for it was like, you know, which one of those was more damaging to American society? Uh, <laughs> but you know, uh, sec- um, I, go ahead. Yeah, no, I think that has to do that has to do with something we talked about last time, which is when you are not making art, there will inevitably be alienation. And maybe it will be alienation as you consume. So especially if you don't consume enough of this stuff, then when you do see it, and you've talked about this on here, when you go back now and Mm -hmm. you see something from TV or you see something from film or you see something from video games, you, you now recognize that it's weird. Yeah. So that's, that's one sense of alienation. Another sense of alienation, the one that we talked a little bit more about last time was you gradually become alienated even on the level of how you shape vowels from your own parents because your sense of how to talk, even on the level of the sounds that you make, let alone the way that you have a conversation or the things that you think are appropriate in a conversation, those are shaped more by this medium, this medium, especially video generically in internet terms, than it is by, you know, your parents or your grandparents or whatever. So I I think that one of the things to ask yourself with the arts is if I'm going to be alienated and I have no way of producing my own music or producing my own writing or producing my own painting or my own film, do I really want to consume something that will likely alienate? Now, I don't, I don't feel alienated. That's, that's a bad verb. I don't, Alienation, say. Alien, yeah, right. I mean, it, I mean it in the broad millennial yeah, push back a little field. bit there. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, I, I am, I am not alienated by everything that is strange to me. Hmm. Sometimes, and and that that is that is part of the, that is part of I think the glory of art is that it produces a breadth or an opening up of the heart or the mind that would not otherwise be there, right? And it does that similar in in the way that travel does. It opens you up to things or encountering new people or new kinds of people. And that can be great. Okay. So not everything has to be homemade in order to be worthwhile, but if nothing is ever homemade and you don't even know how to make it, is that actually an art that you want to participate in even just passively? Right. Cause then you're just back into being the consumer, right? Right. You're, you're back into being the consumer. And at that point you are a kind of a plaything for the producer. Yeah, you are the product. You you might be in internet terms, but I think maybe a little more loosely, you always you always were the product because you are produced by the films. Right. The films will even in you know 1931 kind of tell you how to be. And that was part of the objection that gets presented when you look at people going back and talking about this history. They talk about objections to what was going on in film um, in the 1920s and and prior to 1934 in the same way that they talk about 
the thing that happened in the 70s and early 80s that's now described as the satanic panic. So let me just describe the 70s, 80s thing, because people might actually be more familiar with that. And that'll kind of back us into the history of what we're talking about this week. 70s and 80s, you get a lot of weird things, but especially a certain preschool in the Bay Area as allegedly, that's the way it's described in the official narrative, allegedly the site of child abuse. And the thinking here is that preschools are places, and there are lots of places apparently like this in the United States, increasingly in the 70s, that are uh, simultaneously places of child abuse. And we talked about pedophilia just a little bit last time, child abuse and worship of Satan. I mean, literal worship of Satan, not just kind of this is devilish or weird or bad. Okay. And that gets described and was described by many journalists at the time, not all, but many as a panic, a moral panic. That is all of these people, generally these Christians are worked up about something that isn't real. Just coincidentally, this also occurs at the very same time that, you know, many, many, many households are at least two earner households. So children are now in daycare, which even as early as the, even as late as the early 1970s is really extremely unusual in the United States of America. It's normal in the Soviet Union, strange in the U.S. By the late 70s, early 80s, it's much more normal in the U.S. Kids are in daycare. Mom is not with them during the day. What's happening to them? People are wondering. So this is presented as a kind of hysterical thing, which you'll notice is also the narrative that you get about the Salem witchcraft trials too. People got worked up about something that really wasn't anything. This is really no different from what happens with film in the 20s and early 30s. You have at least 100 legislative bills in various legislatures at various times in the 1920s trying to get state censorship of film. So what that would mean, and the place that is most forward about this, it might surprise the listener, is not somewhere in the South or the middle of nowhere in the West. It's New York. The state of New York is the most aggressive in trying to legislate morality in film. That is, you would have distribution within this studio system we talked about last time. The, the producer, the, the filmmaker, the everything down to the, the distributor itself and you know the, the people that project the film in front of your eyes in a local theater. Those are all within several different companies. That's what the studio system is. So soup to nuts, it's all the same people producing. You go to a Paramount theater, you go to a Lowe's theater that's connected to MGM. Okay, so that's the system. So if you only have four or five targets and regionally you might only have two or three, it's kind of easy to censor. And you say, you can't show that film in the state of New York. You're not allowed to do that. You can show that film and that film and that film, but you can't show this film because whatever criteria we set up in order to avoid that state censorship, 50 different sets of rules, because nobody really wants to see all the stuff that Hollywood is putting out. Okay. And I want to be, I want to be really clear about this partly because this week we're talking about censorship next week. We'll be talking specifically about the occult. I want to be clear about this because I think uh, some people, when we talk about Jews and, or American Jews or anything, they get, they get nervous. They don't want to be anti-Semitic. We've definitely been taught we're not supposed to be anti-Semitic. It's kind of like the word racist, but applied to this specific ethnic slash religious group. Then there are other people, and I know we have listeners like this, that believe that the Jews are kind of behind everything. Here's why I'm somewhere in the middle of those two positions. I'm not nervous talking about it, obviously, but I also, I don't, I don't really, I, here's, here's where I'm in the middle. What I mean by that is when you have a group that sees itself as non-mainstream, which it always was, and understands itself as a self-conscious group, it's not ever going to produce art that lines up with the predilections and tastes of the American mainstream. So American, so Jews in the United States are at this point, 2% of the population by some estimates, what that means and what level of religious practice or political commitment or self-awareness that entails is harder to determine, partly because apparently most American Jews don't marry a Jew. And then of those that don't marry a Jew, some smaller percentage of them even try to raise the children in some sense as Jews. So somewhat like Asian Americans, similarly, 
they're not seemingly reproducing themselves as a group in their own numbers or like Missouri Synod Lutherans, let's be honest, as a group in numbers coherently in the next generation. So it's hard to estimate numbers at this point. They are more than 2% of the population probably in the 1920s. Okay. If they are just, if they are way more than 2% of the people involved in Hollywood, either in the twenties or today, what that means is you're going to get media that don't line up with the tastes of the general population that are not them. They don't have the same views of America. They don't have the same views of what's moral and what's immoral any more than if Hollywood were dominated by Dutch Calvinists or Missouri Synod Lutherans, it would line up with the predilections and tastes of the general American population, which is neither Dutch Calvinist nor Missouri Synod Lutheran. Kind of simple. Okay. On the other hand, they are a self-aware group. That's how you get like the Neil Gabler book we talked about last week. So it doesn't even have to be. And I think that far too much agency is assigned to groups as groups. It doesn't even have to be like a meeting of everybody all doing the same thing. Because when you study them biographically, as Neil Gabler did, they don't agree. Louis B. Mayer is a much more personally conservative man than Adolf Zucker, who are both much more personally conservative, just in American moral terms, than Irving Thalberg, who is much more important for Hollywood's sense of itself going forward because Thalberg dies tragically young than either Mayer or Zucker, even though they provide way more of the money at the outset. It does matter, for example, that they're able to get easy funding from people who are literally their cousins at the investment bank, Kuhn and Loeb and company to help get things started up in the 1920s. All of that matters. I think if you really want to talk about this intelligently, you need to read books by American Jews about American Jewish history, rather than either shying away from it because you don't feel like you're allowed to talk about this specific group of people or asserting kind of generally a, a totally ahistorical framework where Jews are always completely self-aware, act as a group and want to destroy everything all of the time. It's just not borne out by the historical record, either in Germany where they were highly integrated and, and <laughs> therefore that's why some of them actually supported Hitler in the strife that we talked about in the 1920s. Okay. That, you know, I, I'm trying to deal with history and history doesn't support the idea that any single individual or group of people, even self-consciously, even over decades with funding and power are capable of controlling everything all of the time uniformly, right? So it's not that there aren't conspiracies. It's that if you're going to say there is a conspiracy, you need to prove it. So I can prove that there is an easy revolving door between lobbying groups in Washington and government regulatory agencies. That's easy. It's on their resumes. Okay. It's also easy to say Louis B. Mayer had these views on sexuality. So he didn't allow certain things to be produced. So MGM ran into fewer problems than certain other studios did. Okay. I, I'm interested in what occurred. I'm not interested in assigning specific blame to any one group, because here's what else happens when that happens. Then you say that certain things are bad because a group engaged in them. And that always puts people in a position of utter passivity. And passivity is exactly where they want you to be. They want you to feel subject to whatever Fauci says. Think about it. The sense that you can do nothing, that you've never been able to do anything, that it was a giant conspiracy all along. I met this guy the other day that, you know, he, he asked me this question about America and he's like, you know, he just says kind of offhandedly, I think, assuming that I'm going to agree, you know, America is a Masonic nation. Okay, cool. So that's a longstanding Roman Catholic conspiracy theory about the history of the United States. And what I responded with was, well, my ancestors weren't Masons and they were here. So I have trouble saying, you know, categorically, America is a Masonic nation because we've been here. We are Americans and we're not Masons. So you can have whatever theory you want to have. You need to prove that it always was what you said it was. Okay. And if you do that, then also great. What are you going to do about that? Besides tell me that nothing is in my power and I can't do anything about it. Right, right. So like the hunt for the eternal cabal only ends with stagnation. Always. And it, and it ends with passivity and the sense that you can't do anything because 
the Bilderberg group decided this, or the Jews decided that. Do it's the Templars. It, it's always been the Templars. Yeah, right, or whatever. Or, you know, um, in Carol Quigley, it's, it's a, which I, I still want to talk about the book. It's a fascinating book, Tragedy and Hope. You know, for him, it's it's the English with the Jews. And he's actually cheering it on. He supports the post-World War II kind of world order, you know, the, the new world order. I mean, they actually use that phrase. I'm not against that phrase as a phrase or saying that people use it or seeing Jews as a collective that operate collectively. And they obviously do. There's coordinating committees. There's the American Jewish committee. There's APAC. I can talk about this all day. I just don't like a historical assertion hmm. because a historical assertion, either about other people or about oneself with one's own sins, for example, Avoiding actualities always ends up avoiding repentance, which involves avoiding action. If I say, let's say collectively, we were we we thought that the people who were worried about morality in Hollywood were just prudish. And we're not pietists, so we can watch these kinds of movies. Maybe we should accept that we were duped by people presenting sex, drugs, and rock and roll to us as attractive. We were duped by those people who never shared our morality, and we should accept responsibility for that. Let's do that. Let's say that. Okay. But I'm not interested in a story that is just, hey, they did it and it was really bad. Well, okay. it's, it sounds like, oh, go, yeah. go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, it sounds like it's an attempt to attribute supernatural power to a natural cause that you're, you're trying to make these yep. men into gods. And That's right. While they certainly have a tool that is very powerful, like as we've been talking about, you can unplug and you can decide to unplug with a group and you can find out again, not only how hard that is, but also how good that is uh, and right. how much you are able to then become the master of your own direction, trajectory, mind, right. or whatever you want to say. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that was advised. I mean, especially Dutch Calvinists and then certain other what are going to come to be called fundamentalists increasingly say in the 20s and 30s, look, we can't regulate this. We just we can't go to the movie theater. So they they thought about movies the way that many Protestants thought about dancing or going to the live theater in the 19th century, which is sure, theoretically, this could be saved, but it's never going to be. So just don't go to it. That wasn't generally the approach of most American Christians. What happened instead of government regulation and in order to avoid government regulation, the movie industry said that they would do the same thing that eventually the brokerage industry said when they were under the same pressure, which is, no, 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 please don't regulate us, let alone don't make us deal with 50 different regulators for the 50 states. We'll regulate ourselves. <laughs> right. So the securities industry has what's now called FINRA, what used to be the origin of NASDAQ, right? National Association of Stock Dealers. They said, we'll regulate ourselves. So in 1934, they begin to use the studio system, begins to use what's colloquially called the Hayes Code. And this is kind of this is an interesting thing religiously and ethnically. They choose two Gentile Christians to run this. Hayes is a Presbyterian layman and Joseph Breen is a Catholic layman and they're going to be responsible basically for regulating this and this is an attempt basically to say okay we're going to make our peace with America because you can watch movies from the 1930s and not really in cinematography or dialogue but content wise it looks like you know maybe not 2021 but maybe 1994 I mean, there's sex, there's violence. Uh, the good guys don't always win. So the Hayes Code comes in as of 34 as a self-regulatory mechanism. And it says we're, the good guy's going to win. Lawmen are going to be upheld. The criminals will not win in our movies. Marriage is going to be predicted as normal and, and honorable. And we're not, like, not going to show divorced people as good people. We're not going to show premarital, extramarital sex for sure. Lots of stuff like this. Okay. That functions for about three decades as a self-regulatory thing. What happens in the meantime is actually going to lead to the end of it. And the Second World War relates to this in the sense that to both world wars produce, and I think we've talked about this with World War I. I, I know we have in the Discord. Both world wars produce what everyone at the time in the 20s and then the late 40s, early 50s recognizes as 
enormous amounts of sexual and social change. People are dissatisfied. They're getting divorced or they're not getting married. They're having, this is really interesting with the second world war, at least immediately right after a lot of them are saying, we're not, people are not having children. They don't want to have children. So now that's going to be contravened by the baby boom in the fifties, but that's a whole separate thing. But there's kind of a loosening of morals after both world wars. And this this also goes for Hollywood. Now, Hollywood is still enforcing the code in the 50s, but not as stringently as they did in the 30s and 40s. And there are also topics that they're kind of pressing on, especially in the 50s and early 60s, that they never touched. So in the 30s and 40s, there is part of the Hayes Code is stuff that a lot of people would not include as morally necessary anymore. So for instance, part of the Hayes Code is you don't, you don't show interracial relationships. In the 40s and 50s, they're going to start showing that. I mean, the most famous example of that, I think from the early 60s, actually, is look who's coming to dinner, right? But what you're going to get is Hollywood beginning to push in a direction that it wasn't pushing in before, okay? Uh, new directions after the Second World War. And that's going to be combined with something that I think actually matters a lot more than the whims of individual directors and studios, and that is the 1948 decision, United States versus Paramount Pictures, generally just called the Paramount decision, which says that the studio system where everything is unified, it's a unified system from conception to projection of MGM does this, you know, whatever. That is actually, that's an illegitimate trust, right? That, that is just as illegitimate as what John Rockefeller was trying to do. Uh, with Standard Oil, you can't do that. You can't control every aspect of something. And what that what that means just really initially is that movie theaters cannot and should not be controlled by movie studios, production units, okay? But what it's eventually going to mean is that all the different elements of movie making from writing to casting to production to distribution to uh, actually running theaters that doesn't have to be all entirely broken up overnight but it all potentially could be broken up if you wanted it to be and what that's going to mean for the person who sits there and watches movies is that finally these kind of sort of grand old men of hollywood are no longer going to be making all the decisions about what what is allowed to be made. So this extends from sexual morality, right? So instead of having men born in the 19th century making decisions about what sexual morality should be portrayed, you get younger directors making those decisions and then, you know, kind of uh, realizing that in Europe, directors get to make a lot more decisions and saying in the 50s and 60s, well, this is the film I'm making, so you can deal with that. And I'll get it shown somewhere, even if it's only in New York. Because in New York, somebody's going to watch it, okay? And I want this film to be made. So they're dissatisfied with the studio system. But you also get this with topics. I brought up, you know, interracial relationships. You get this, you get several pictures made immediately after the Second World War about anti-Semitism, whereas you don't really have Jews acting as Jews in films in the 40s and 30s, uh, earlier 40s. They're going to, everyone's still going to kind of pretend to be an Anglo-Saxon on film, we talked about it with names last week. So you, you get just a different change. And the, the issue here is that, and we'll talk about this probably more next week with, with Kubrick specifically, because he loved to talk about films as dreams. When people talk about dreams, I think that they, they don't give enough weight to that. Say that films are, films are like dreams. They're, they're illusory. They, they present illusions. They're not showing reality. Yeah, that's definitely true in a sense. but they're also they're also dreams in the sense that if you take if you take them seriously which we've been saying by virtue of the medium it's really easy to do because through music and cinematography they they determine how you feel and what you're thinking if they present you a vision of an america where sydney poitier can come to dinner then that is going to affect how you think about you know what decisions your city council or the state or, you know, the Supreme Court should make about education and 
integration and stuff like, I mean, it, it really does matter what is put in front of your eyeballs. So when you think about them as dreams, what we're saying is as a studio system breaks down, the range of dreams that the American people are allowed to look at is going to change and broaden. And that matters a lot, even before the production code goes formally out of existence altogether as we shift into the, into the sixties. But yeah, so, before so we go there. this yes, is sir. where, you know, me and my metaphor pun land, um, the word projection just carries so much weight when you think about what film is, how it works, that it is uh, light going through something which has been produced in order to project a vision before you. And that this projection becomes one that entering your eye, the, the lamp of your body, uh, becomes something that will begin to project what your feelings and assumed feelings about reality should be because you're yeah. going to want to be in line with what you've already felt because you've been convinced that that is good by by what you've seen. Right. And um, while I, I'll go on record as saying, you know, I think interracial marriage is probably pretty good for the genetic code. Uh, it is something to say that bef- that would have been vehemently disagreed with uh, before right. before the 50s and 60s. Right. And so right. The, the power of film to change people in that way, uh, again, to project a new reality and have us then go do the work of continuing to project that onto our futures. That's where you have to see the power of the medium for what it is. And right. that once they really start learning to do this on purpose, um, it becomes a whole different beast. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I, I think that the mention of, you know, that phrase from the Sermon on the Mount, the lamp of the body is that the eye is maybe your most, that is your most powerful sense. And so what goes into the eye and the eye being sound or unsound or the light, which is in you itself being darkness, right? So your sense, even of what it means to be enlightened, if that's off, if that's ungodly, then that came through your eyes. And how great is the other darkness that is in you? If the light itself, which is in you is dark. So there, I, I think that 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 idea of the lamp of the body is why film has such peculiar power. And what what happens is that gradually Hollywood realizes as the studio system, I mean, it crumbles gradually. You get new production units, you get new arrangements between studios and directors, you get new bargaining power. The other thing that you get is the lamp of the body being addressed basically constantly with somewhere upwards of like 85% of American households having a TV by the late fifties, they have to compete with TV, which never had a studio system. So someone like Alfred Hitchcock is going to cross over between the two formats, basically because he can, and because it gives him bargaining power when he has to talk to a studio. But what he can see is that he can now accomplish more. And when you watch early TV, you will see that it looks much more cinematic and is presented almost cinematically or, or in some ways kind of like a play. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Missouri Synod's TV program, uh, This is the Life, was presented in that way. It was presented as a series of one-off productions looking almost like movies. And that's, that's kind of, I mean, it started in the 50s, so that's why it looks that way and it continued much later than that. But that whole idea was because movies are consciously imitating cinema, but from the first are funded completely differently and produced differently and and always have a greater freedom. So what cinema realizes is, okay, if every day people are looking at things, productions, then why are we allowing ourselves to be governed by this completely voluntary code that is not really being enforced in nearly the same way and doesn't exist to the same degree with TV? So they move from this code where the studio decides before something comes out, this is okay or this is not okay, so that we don't get in trouble with whoever or whatever, potentially lawsuits, potential legislation. Then they move into what originally is a very primitive form of the rating system in the mid-60s. And the first rating is SMA, Subject for Mature Audiences. And SMA would probably be really tame at this point, but it was 
revolutionary at the time. As of 1968, they abandoned that for the for something basically like the range of ratings that we now have. But watch what a rating does. A rating says that the movie you're watching is not a matter of public concern because there's no public authority that regulates whether or not this is allowed to be shown. This is not even particularly a matter of our concern because we put the movie out there. <laughs> the movies that you see are purely a matter of your private consumer decision. I think about this every time I think I see people saying, well, I'm going to boycott this company or that company. And that's totally fine if you want to do that. But you just have to realize like, that doesn't matter. And it basically never did. What mattered would have been if the state of New York had said, no, you can't show that in our state. That is destructive. In the same sense that we don't let people mail pornography anywhere in the 1920s, we're not going to let you show this movie to anybody in this state. Sorry, you just can't do it. You're not allowed. We had been, I mean, we've been regulating mail the entirety of American history. You couldn't, you couldn't advertise for birth control in 1920 anywhere. It wasn't legal to do so. So see, they already got a victory by saying, it's okay, we'll regulate ourselves, <laughs> which is the same reason that like the broker, you know, the securities industry, it doesn't have historically a duty, a fiduciary duty that all kinds of other financial institutions do because they regulated themselves instead of yeah. being regulated by the I, government. I'd like to start taxing myself rather than, you know, letting the government do it. it <laughs> right. I think that'll work out pretty well for me. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the idea that you're boycotting it is fine, but unless you're organized, as were many of the groups that put this kind of pressure on in the 20s and 30s that got at least the self-regulation of the Hayes Code, it doesn't matter what your personal consumer decisions are. You could keep doing it or not do it. It, it really, truly doesn't matter. I, so, I really, go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. I mean, I think, I think the victory they won was turning all of these questions into industry or consumer questions. Yeah, private consumer Rather than ideas. allowing it to be a political question. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. Because they're not a matter of the group anymore, right? Right. They, they've divided us just like right. that. They've divided right. us. Uh, so I, I really want to move on. I, I don't. I don't want to move on past the chaos of the '60s without having you at least just you know just open up the chaos of the '60s. But I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm itching to get to Dirty Harry too. So Dirty uh, Harry, yeah, better movie is Death Wish, the first one. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So the the I movies at this point can serve some kind of historical value because as it gets opened up, what you're allowed to put in a movie, what you're allowed to show people you do get reflections of things that people have now forgotten about. And the reason that I put Dirty Harry and Death Wish in our notes for today is because they reflect an America that I think a lot of people, partly because of the 80s and then the economic prosperity of the 90s, forgot happened. But it resembles the late 60s and most of the 70s in the United States resemble our year much more closely than the 80s and 90s do. There is enormous racial strife. There are black people killing white people and saying that it's racially justified. You know, I mean, they weren't killing people with vehicles like in Waukesha or however you say that, but it's the same realities are happening. You have an enormous spike in crime. People have a sense that the world is spinning out of control. Okay. That's why Nixon was so popular right? That wasn't totally random. If you look at what people are actually worried about, crime is absolutely enormous and racial strife is enormous. That actually gets recorded in lots of places, but if you can't find old newspapers or old debates or you know, now moldy books that no one remembers, you can look at a movie like Dirty Harry or Death Wish. And this is I think the significance of this, there is something kind of different than today in the solutions offered in Dirty Harry and Death Wish. Now, Harry is a cop, but he is a vigilante cop. And Charles Bronson's character in Death Wish 1, which is based on a movie, and I think it's a better movie than Dirty Harry because it's in a way kind of a purer reflection of what's happening. So I want to kind of focus on it if I can. Death Wish is a, is a story about a man who's an architect. He's kind of, kind of a standard, you know, white liberal in a big city, just, just like today. And his wife and daughter are ambushed 
and the, the tension the tension in death wish is not specifically racial you'd have to go to kind of hollywood wasn't as interested they weren't as interested in touching that in the 70s certainly not the kind of revenge fantasies that you get today from hollywood with non-whites killing whites and it's like good and, and wonderful it's it's an all-white gang that attacks bronson's his name is paul kersey paul kurt in the movie paul kersey's wife and daughter uh they follow them home from the grocery store the wife is beaten uh and raped uh the daughter is raped and killed the son-in-law who's kind of a weak character um doesn't want to even pursue this okay and Kersey is filled with a sense of, I don't know what to do about it. Like, what, do I, what am I supposed to do? What, what can I do? Okay. He's totally passive. He has to go out to Arizona for uh, this business deal. They're trying to build this development. Um, and he encounters this cowboy. And he relates to this cowboy what has happened to him. I mean, he just seems miserable. So the cowboy, you know, this, this rancher says like, you know, what, you know what, what, basically what's eating you? He tells him this horribly sad story I just related to you guys. And the rancher says, you know, we just wouldn't put up with that. <laughs> we just we just wouldn't put up with that. And what happens while he's in Arizona before he flies back to New York is that he learns how to use a gun. And the rancher gives him a six shooter uh, initially, if I remember correctly. I might be wrong about that. It's in his luggage when he flies back to New York. Now that's, you know, that's, this is pre 9-11. So Different times. flying with a gun, it's not a problem. No big deal, right? You're an American. It's a gun, you know? So he flies back to New York and he just figures, yeah, like the, the police aren't going to do anything. My son-in-law is weak. He just, he just figures like, oh, this is, we just have to take it. I'm not going to put up with this. And he starts hunting down criminals in New York and just shooting them at night because Batman. the police won't do it. Batman. This was an immensely pop. It was so popular. They made a series of generally horribly, almost kind of corny. Like he ends up using a bazooka in one of the sequels. Yeah, right, right. But that's how popular it was because, and I think you can see this in Dirty Harry too, the sense that the police were not doing their job was everywhere. And you can find, you know, liberals on Twitter who live in San Francisco beginning to say some of these things themselves. Now uh, the world is spinning out of control. I now understand why people want guns. And that idea is kind of archived in some of these things that, yeah, Hollywood would never produce that movie precisely the way it is today, but you can look back and you can, you can see some of that because part of the production code opening up was we were letting some of the darker parts of the American psyche and, and contemporary life, actually be reflected in movies which they they wouldn't have been back in you know the 50s so if i if i can i don't know if i can say this or not but my initial question the role of film in an enlightened society is to show you how film uh what uh chronicalizes the fall of an enlightened society i yeah that's definitely part of it because if i go back and i look at i mean any death wish or anything like that I'm not only seeing things, the sight of which changed people at the time or are changing me as I'm thinking about them. I'm also seeing some, they, they, they are a projection, but they are also to some degree, a mirror of something. Maybe not the fullness of reality, maybe not a desirable reality, but they are also to some degree, maybe a very dull mirror. And one of those mirrors was the idea that America's spinning out of control. And what we need to do is go back to the way it was with the Cowboys, where you could settle things for yourself. Um, that is reflected in, that's definitely reflected in the Paul Kersey character, because everybody knew that, that crime was totally out of control. So you got to make my day and say why Dirty Harry matters then. And do you see what dirty, I did there? You got to see what I dirty, did there too. Yeah, Dirty Harry. <laughs> I do. I, even I picked up on it. Um, dirty Harry matters because you get a sense that I think you can see people don't have as much anymore. Because even when characters are inside the system in the 70s, 80s, even the early 90s, even when they're inside the system, the system is corrupt and they have to go outside the system if there's going to be a solution. People who have been raised on media since the 90s and even, you know, people who would have seen Dirty Harry in a theater, but are 
you know, still watching CSI today, you'll notice that especially since, since September 11th, solutions, violent or nonviolent, have generally present, be, been presented within the terms of the system. So now, you know, you're, the, the heinousness of the January 6th people is that they tried to overthrow our system, mm-hmm. right? Whereas in Dirty Harry, our system is obviously heinous and evil. Therefore, Harry's solutions have to be outside the system in some regard. And Paul Kersey was never inside the system. He's just an architect. So the idea is that, you know, the cop is not a good guy necessarily. And if he is, it's because he's not like all the other cops. Because the cops are corrupt and the mayor is corrupt and the city council is corrupt. Whereas now it's like, oh, look at this strong, brave, you know, Latinx woman who works for the CIA. And then look at these like evil white domestic terrorists or whatever. Like the system is good now in most things. And the the plot revolves around, they're essentially all, if they were within detective novel, if they were detective novels there, everything is a police procedural now. Who cares what's outside the system? Who cares if maybe the mayor himself is wicked or the system itself is wicked? We just want to figure out how, you know, brave, qualified government agent of some kind figures out what's wrong. Yeah. White hat. Yep. Yep. Um, exactly. Somehow Ben Hur has come to mind in all of this. So if, if you're going to go watch Dirty Harry and Death Wish, just throw Ben and Ben Hur in with it. Cause, cause I think that's going to really show yeah. you um, the shift right? Yeah. In just a yeah. couple of decades yep. from a, a, a movie that is presenting uh, an abused and harmed male who has to take into his hands, you know, survival uh, in a system that is set against him and, mm-hmm. and what happens in the, in the way they, they, you know, what pursue the virtue as, as the solution uh, versus just pure vigilantism. And I, yeah. I dropped the word Batman in there before. I mean, Batman, I, I, I'm, Batman's a lot of different things to a lot of different people, but but I think uh, one of the uh, most profound things about Batman, as opposed to most other superhero narratives, is Gotham is a broken system. We got, Gotham is, is, is defunct top to bottom. He keeps trying to save it for some reason, right? And the bad guys actually want to destroy it. But the idea there, again, is at least that seems to reflect um, more of the zeitgeist of the present, right? And of the, the 60s and 70s. Um, than say Superman, uh, Marvel, and these others that are, again, uh, look at these great people who are working with the system. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And even the concept of vigilante, which is obviously brought up in connection with the Rittenhouse trial, that, you know, that is a judgment that also says that somehow our form of government, especially common law, I mean, there, there's there's just an, an error there that says that violence was always only the preserve of the state. So a citizen even having a firearm is kind of weird, right? And has to be explained, let alone defending himself or his loved ones, right? So I think what, what you're dealing with there and never quite gets, let's say, resolved. And it's, it's, it's largely why I think people were thinking of Rittenhouse as a vigilante is because not because they have such a grasp of common law or jury nullification or anything, any of these principles of citizen action, which are very historically grounded in the United States, it's because they're accustomed to forms of entertainment and news media, which we've said are the same thing, just media. They're accustomed to forms of media where any violence, even in self-defense by an agent who is not an agent of the state is wrong. Seems like the agents of the state aren't allowed to do violence either. I mean, I, I, yeah. I, I <laughs> that's also, you know, depend, it, it, it depends who they're shooting, right? <laughs> it's okay if you, you know, beat and starve people who were at the Capitol on January 6th. It is not okay if the person was a, you know, convicted felon multiple times and a pedophile, then you shouldn't have done anything to him. So it does depend. But if anyone's going to do any violence, it's okay for the state to do it. I think that is the presumption. And that that is definitely I mean, when when they when they warned us about the Patriot Act, the ones that did, Hmm. uh, one of the things they didn't see coming was like Jack Bauer where every episode of 24 is just a question of how many people 
who look at least vaguely Mediterranean or Middle Eastern are going to be tortured before we get to the end of the episode in order to find resolution. But like I said, I think the genre that has taken over action, let's say, in addition to just moving it all into comic book world, which we've talked about they do partly because of the marketing, you know, it needs to sell in China at this point. All of that action drama is completely just police procedural, which is, has always been the most boring form of a detective story. But the police procedural always presumes that the action needs to be and should be solely taken by the state. Are you familiar with the movie Falling Down? No. No? Um, and now I'm going to lose the guy's name. Uh, Michael Douglas. Uh, okay. 1990s. Uh, sounds a lot like Death Wish to me. I never saw it. I saw the previews for it. Um, okay. But uh, yeah, I don't know if you want to go look that one up or maybe one of our... Uh, some of our Discord friends can start chatting about all this at some point in the Discord. Right. Uh, so we're, we're closing in on our on our hour here, or maybe even past yes, it. Sir. But let's let's wrap up here then with the movie makers being far away and the chaos getting closer to home. The movie makers have always been far away in the sense that within Los Angeles politics, they have generally been helped and protected. I mean, they didn't have to wear masks at the Emmys this year, even though masks are still kind of a prerequisite of Californian life at this point, they always get special breaks and they've been preserved from violence. The Watts riots didn't touch Hollywood physically in the late 1960s. So they have always been truly protected and continue to be protected uh, legally, financially, politically, and they get tax breaks almost everywhere that they film outside of California as well. So they have always been distant, I think, from either the chaos as a mirror of American life. So what they portray has always been distant from their everyday lives, which have remained pleasant and lucrative. And it has been distant from the chaos as a projection of American life. That is, they will not have to be responsible necessarily themselves for teaching you the things that they teach you through the movies that they make. So they themselves are not required to get divorced, even if divorce is present in the movies before 1934. And they themselves are not required to be subject to Skynet, even if that has been shown to you as a possible dystopian future for yourself, because whoever's running Skynet is actually (laughs) going to help them out politically. Uh, Silicon Valley uniting with Hollywood at this point. I think what is really interesting is that looking into the future, it may be that people cut the cord, but streaming services have in, certainly they've given rise to new production units, Netflix, Amazon. I think streaming has really reunited the chain of command of the old studio system, brought it back into being. And those people are definitely at this point, not men raised with 19th century sexual morality, let alone anything else. And so I think that sort of like our politicians, our media producers have only grown more distant from us, but they actually have more power in production and in projection, let's say broadly, whether it's in the theater or on your computer screen than they did even 20 years ago. So I am looking forward, maybe not to a new golden age of Hollywood, uh, whatever that meant. And a wonderful book on that, if the readers are interested, is Otto Friedrich's memoir. Somewhat, he's, he's, he's as paranoid about anti-Semites as maybe some of the listeners are about Jews. So that's just a proviso going in. He's, he's a little paranoid, but it's a really entertaining memoir of Hollywood in the 1940s. And it was always sexually depraved <laughs> for itself. It was always a weird place. It was a place where young, beautiful people get chewed up and spit out always. It just didn't always project that onto the American populace. Now it does. And I think with streaming services, it has the same kind of economic integration that it had, and maybe even to a greater degree with broader media companies like NBC Universal than it did back in the 1940s. Yeah, I, I thought about this while you were talking about 1948 versus Paramount, like whether or not Twitter should qualify as a trust. Oh, yeah. Well, and that's a that's a thing. I mean, you have to anytime that somebody says, oh, you know, this can't be a public utility or Twitter's a private company or something. Uh, we didn't say that about lots of things in American history. Uh, we didn't censor your personal speech. You can stand up in public and say anything you want. Okay. 
But we felt very free historically to censor the speech of corporate entities, whether for-profit or non-profit, if they were destroying public morality. There really wasn't a question about that. Um, And we did that with advertising and we did that with movies. They were really scared of it. So if you want Twitter to do something in the public interest, probably finally you're going to have to regulate it as a public utility. You're listening to A Brief History of Power. Go ahead. Make our day.